0: welcome to book rising a podcast by the radical books collective hi everyone uh welcome to our little radical books uh, collective event, How to Write About War. I know we put this together in the last minute, so thank you for joining us. Uh, I thought we could all introduce ourselves and our relationship to this event. Um, you know, what is your individual investment in this topic? Have you covered war or some form of violence? Uh, have you written fiction about it? I know two people who have um, been in a war zone, edited a war magazine. Why does this conversation matter? And we can just kind of go around. I don't know who wants to go first.
1: Billy, I nominate you. Oh, come in. Get, <laughs> <give me> some- <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll go first. So uh, my name is Nadeefa Mohammed, and I have written about war, I guess uh, twice at least. So mm-hmm. in Black Mamba Boy, JaMA experiences uh, the Second World War as a child soldier for the Italian fascist army. And in The Orchard of Lost Souls, you have the build up to the Somali civil war in Hargeisa in the north of Somalia, as it was then. So my own life has been impacted by civil war. Uh, we left Somalia before it um, happened, but in many ways it has still framed my life.
0: Right. And I think let we could argue that The Fortune Men is about a different kind of war, you know, mm-hmm. uh, against migrants, against, uh, you know, about yeah. race and so on. Okay. So, Chitra, do you want to
2: say more? Um, sure. Um, I actually first mm-hmm. um, encountered war, not as a writer, but as a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. As a young lawyer, I started working for the tribunal of Yugoslavia and Rwanda. And then I spent um, time... Um, in places, um, again, you realize that post Cold War, you really just stopped calling war war. You started using words like civil crisis, insurgency, mm-hmm. but in reality, what was really happening is that these were wars happening on the shadow of the empire. And of course, I was—I've um, spent time in occupied spaces, but also, I think. In terms of war, um, Afghanistan was um, between 2010 and 2013. I spent time in Afghanistan. I was embedded with the US forces um, in Bhaktika province. Um, so for me, thinking about war is also thinking about structural injustice that happens around the world. Um, I became a, I decided to become a writer much later. I was a lawyer first. Um, and I'm, most of my work has been nonfiction and reported pieces. Um, But as Bhakti knows, I'm also thinking about a book that, um, a book of fiction that I'm beginning to work that is thinking about some of these issues. So,
0: yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Billy?
3: Uh, Thanks, 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 Bhakti. Hi again, everyone. Um, Yeah, so I used to edit uh, a journal called Kwani, uh, and back in 2006, when Kenya went into post-election violence, uh i helped put together uh two 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 issues around the conflict that emerged from the elections in kenya of 2007
2: mm-hmm. and
3: this included something called uh, quantify which is about a thousand pages of photography fiction non-fiction uh, essays uh, interviews Around around that crisis that almost plunged Kenya into into Mm -hmm. civil war, yeah, yeah. And I've also written about this in different short stories. Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. exactly. And I think when it comes to me, I think uh, you know, Radical Books Collective is a kind of new avatar of what was Warscapes Magazine for, and we still operate as Warscapes Magazine and other things, which was something I co-founded. And the whole idea of Warscapes Magazine was to not simply publish things about conflict or war but to expand war to mean more than just a military conflict uh but to kind of view it as a lens as a lens into displacement as a lens into gender into trauma um, all the kind of things that come uh, you know that are part of, of course, the afterlife, but also the before, the lead up to, you know, kind of violent conditions. So I think that you know exposed me to a lot of, uh, uh, to a lot of writing. It was also the fact that uh, what we are seeing now is that understanding of war or discourses of war is always, has always been uh, stuck has always ended almost with the Second World War. And one doesn't pay attention uh, as much to what we know about the wars that came out of the Cold War, all the proxy wars or the weapons flooding and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, part of the imperative of warscapes, part of the uh was very much to move past the paradigms uh, and the, and the, endless amounts of fiction, historical drama, TV, movies about the first and the second uh, world wars. So, you know, and I think we're seeing some of those framework operating today as well. There is a um, there is a real disorientation, it seems, around history, uh, what history to fall back on uh, when we observe uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, how to ally, uh, which side to take, so on and so forth. So I think uh you know so i think part of also this conversation is about expanding that understanding of uh, of war as not just something militaristic you know but it's also kind of a larger framework uh i'm going to i'm going to pose a pose a second question which i told you in advance that uh, i would ask i think we've all been uh, angry at some of the um Uh, coverage of the way things have have gone on, especially as uh, writers, editors, scholars of of color from, you know, Global South or India or Somalia, Kenya, Uh, you know, it's, there's been something in the coverage that everyone's been unhappy about. And I think the title of the event is evoking uh, Binyavanga Wainana's satirical essay, How to Write About Africa, which was essentially, as we know, how not to write about Africa. So, Maybe we can go around and talk about one problem that's really made you angry this time around uh, with the war coverage of Ukraine, whether it's visual, whether it's written. What's the how not to? What is an egregious thing
1: you've observed? The first thing that comes to mind for me is the focus on pets. So in Ukraine, there's been lots what? of adoring sort of Uh, reportage about how much Ukrainians love their pets and how many people have brought cats or dogs with them or the heartbreak of having to leave those animals at the train stations. Um, And it happened with Afghanistan as well, where the British government put a lot of energy or Boris Johnson put a lot of energy into getting out stray animals that were being looked after by a British NGO. Mm -hmm. Um, And the outcry over the The potential for these animals to be left in Afghanistan, in in contrast to the acceptance of how people who had worked with worked for the British in Afghanistan were to be left behind, is something that really grates on me. Where even an animal's life is seen as more important than the Muslim life or the Black life or any any other type of marginalized person.
0: I haven't seen this. I'm so glad we. I, I asked this. Uh, yeah, I would like to be more compassionate towards animals, but I think I choose to take this side. <laughs> I choose to err on the side of human in this. What if what has bothered you, suchitra Um, I
2: mean, a lot's bothered me because you know <laughs> from our conversations. Um, I would I would pick one. I think one thing is the the way in which this is all being covered one of the, the boogeyman that we're hearing is that this is going to be the third world war. This is going to be our generation's third world war. But in reality, if you're someone like me who became a young adult um, in the shadows of 9-11, for 20 years, we've had a third world war. We've had the war in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. We've had the war in Iraq. We've had the crisis, uh, the war uh, in Syria, now Yemen, not mention in the name of war on terror what has been consistently inflicted on Muslim communities. Um, We know about the detention sites, uh, extraordinary rendition that happened, places like Bagram and, and Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. Despite the overwhelming evidence that there has been a war that has engulfed so many communities, the idea that somehow this is going to be the third world war and this is something that we are going to witness I find it appalling that even the coverage, the language of it, is so bad. And of course, there are other things as well that come along with it—the crisis about documenting about refugees. Uh, within a course of a week, one point two million refugees was absorbed into Poland and other countries. When Syrian refugees were were leaving, were being—it's um, it, just—it's it, hard. It's of course, it's heartbreaking. It's it's also brings us to the point that. Now we have openly European reporters saying that, oh, this is Europe. We are civilized. This shouldn't be happening to us. We are proud that Poland took zero refugees. I think the rhetoric, the the blatant racism, um, and it feels like the eve of Iraq. And that's, I think, something that you've also spoken about. It feels like 2002, only this was 20 years ago. I was a very young person. I didn't have the language. But 20 years later, it still feels like the eve of the war on Iraq in 2002.
0: Mm Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's become clear to me how much there's a Muslim idea of the Dar es Salaam versus the Dar al hab you know, the region of peace and versus the region of war. And that idea is firmly set in the Western European gaze as well. There is a site of war, that, and that's where war should stay. It should never approach the zone of peace.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, the outcry when people from the war of, uh, the zone of war come and try and find peace here where the the boundary is so firmly set and is so so gate-keeped, (laughs) gate-kept, then that Muslim idea, which is quite a historical idea, is from the medieval period of time, but the West has really tried to maintain that in our current age. And I think um, the shock of blonde-haired, blue-eyed children having to get on a train or sleep on the floor somewhere, um is a is a real potent symbol for them of of how much they are willing to inflict violence outside of that zone to maintain their own peace
0: mhm mhm yeah
1: i think uh, i think
0: it remi- at the time i wasn't aware of exactly how it played out but i think when the displacement when the displaced uh, were being uh, were uh, you know from the bosnia from the events in bosnia and the breakup of yugoslavia there was a sense that uh you know the resettlement and of those refugees fleeing that particular violence um, you know, was, uh, there were more, there were simply more that were integrated into uh, Europe and North America, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, migrants from whichever countries who can't even participate in like a green card lottery or something in the US, you know, because there's yeah. just already, there's an idea that you've already crowded us enough. Um,
1: so and when you arrive, you bring that war with you. You know, the the Polish Polish vice, uh, deputy prime minister, whatever he was, was saying very clearly, these people will work, they will do this, they will do that. How can they work when they've just arrived? I don't even know if their language is similar enough for them to just suddenly walk into these jobs. And how will the Poles respond to people taking their jobs? That will be seen in the future. But Mm -hmm. in his mind, other non-white, non-Christian people only bring violence, they bring terrorism, they bring crime. Mm Um and so you're yeah. you are the embodiment of your war now in, in their streets, in their homes, in their schools.
0: Yeah. B- believers.
3: yeah, yeah. Uh I, I I what this tells me is a kind of triumphant in, in kind of especially in the western media, especially perceived perceived ideas of shifts towards Ukraine's support. And and for me that's a problem because it's it going back to I think what Sututra was saying or even Nadifa was saying about depicting this as a grand theater of war. So it becomes again this this place that has that where you've made clear cut sides without reminding us about just the immediate context that has happened over the last 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, the coup in Ukraine in 2008, uh, yeah. how uh, he came into power, what the US has been doing in the Ukraine. And just telling us that, just reminding us that there aren't that many good guys in all the, at, at the global level. That for me, how that's playing out vis-a-vis just what's happening to ukraine and just the bombing of the flagrant so ukraine is paying for that Mm
0: -hmm.
3: for that kind of i think western the the, the media war that the west is Mm waging that's frustrating that seems to be frustrating russia into bombing the city flagrantly right So, so
1: there's
3: a kind of There's a kind of media that's being pushed, I I find in Western media that I think is resulting directly in in problems in in, in the Ukraine, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the lack of immediate context about the complexity of what has been happening there has also kind of moved moved away. um, Yeah, and I find that kind of disturbing, Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's for sure. I think the other, I mean, the other, the other, other thing is, is this uh, is like, as soon as one goes into war mode, and I said this before, our definition of war immediately alters right away. It does become this militaristic space, this this theater, this place of combat, and one forgets like the war on women, the war on drugs, the war on terror that are kind of more technically slow violence, though they're always just just as horribly. Fast and vicious, right? Uh, so that definition shifting is uncomfortable for me. And then I think um I think within that uh, we see all this numbers game. And the most extraordinary, horrifying thing I've observed is some people making charts like the Syria five years, only hundred missiles, only these many people. Ukraine last eight days, these many things. So this kind of um comparative uh understandings that are so so awful uh you know and and they're just out there and part of me does want to say that the social media and the digital is exposing us to more giving us more information that i didn't have during the bosnia stuff uh even during 9-11 i would say what things that happened then um part of me wants to say that there is um you know something's good something's changing but it seems that it just ends up being the reverse it almost makes it worse uh, and that suspicion uh, upsets me i don't know where you what what you all feel but i don't know what uh, i don't know what you know as someone who does consume and does does engage with social media i don't know how to kind of enga- how to kind of think about its power or its uh, deeply cruel kind of impact you know because it is, it is shifting. It is changing the changing how we talk about this. It is moving things, somewhat. So you know, I, I worry about. I worry about that. I think.
2: Um, I think we're having conversations like we did uh, when the mm-hmm. was happening in Cairo. We were yeah. saying things like, you know, the revolution is here. Twitter is going to be this. Um, is going to be the revolutionaries, you know, uh, the revolution will not only be televised, it will be live tweeted. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years after you realize that it's not the problem with information. Yesterday we have access to more information. Information could have been more democratized. But the yeah. reality is, I don't think as humans, we know how to process information. I don't think we know how to process noise. Mm-hmm. At the time, what we consume is noise, because every single day it is ten things, twenty things, thirty things, right. and we're constantly reacting. I don't think we have time to understand what happens. I don't think we have the capacity to analyze. I don't think the idea of long durée is gone. Um, you know, um, if someone says long durée, long durée is literally today morning till today evening. Like mm-hmm. six hours is long durée now. And I think our capacity to really understand, we are all bearing witness. Everybody's now bearing witness. Mm -hmm. Bearing witness doesn't change things. And I think that is the truth. And we all use this language of bearing witness as if by bearing witness somehow we can, the reality is we bear witness more, but we also, I believe that have less and less power to Mm -hmm. affect any change. And I think that's linked to the idea that as individuals, we no longer have the power I think we've become, we've been all changed into consuming, surveilled objects and subjects. Right. You, but I, I, I am afraid the power we have as a collective, as citizens, as, as a community, I just don't know. And I'm not saying this in a pessimistic way. I'm, I'm, I'm truly, I do not know where we are, mm-hmm. what power we have today in order to affect real change.
0: Right. Yeah. So
2: those are conversations I, we should have.
0: Yeah. I think bearing witness cannot is, is somehow becoming more and more incompatible with framing everything through the lens of emergency you know Like a lot of these uh, CNN reporters, uh, you know, CNN, CBS, everybody, all of them, uh, of course, are so uh, intent on quickly reporting something that they insist, you know, I'm saying, you know, uh, here I am, this is happening and, you know, I, I have to get this stuff out. And so it is okay to say I have a historical amnesia. It is okay to be a little bit racist. It is okay to be sexist. It's okay to, um, you know, engage some of these extremely problematic things because, you know, all you're doing is, yes, you're bearing witness, yes, you're reporting, but it's, it's okay to be sloppy uh, because it's an emergency. And that's the other thing that I find to be a very uh, problematic uh, kind of issue. Anyways, I I think Billy, you were trying
3: to say something. Yeah, and, and and when you have when spectacle rules and spectacle on top of ongoing spectacle, that even makes that excuse easier.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It, yeah, because what happens is that everything that just happened is immediately forgotten. Right. So that that even kind of makes it makes makes it, makes it worse. I also wanted to add, I, I've been really trying to look for kind of. Russia side of things and kind of understanding a lot of things and someone sent me a twitter link um i don't know whether i can find it but just kind of this kind of rationale or kind of understanding of what's going on that just felt so different from Mm -hmm. anything else i've i've kind of read that i found fascinating Mm -hmm. and i think social media because it 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 concentrates on different things could help against, could help against the, the grander media theater.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've spoken like a person who's not on social media right now, Billy, which I think at the moment you're not, unless it's, <laughs> unless unless you're on fake accounts and we don't Unlike,
3: know. yeah.
1: <laughs> and we're also dealing with two countries that are very adept at information war. You know, the Russians have been engaged in it for, I don't know, 10, 15 years now, and the Ukrainians seem just, if not better, um, just as good, if not better, than mm-hmm. the Russians. So I'm I'm constantly looking at it from a communications point of view as well, as as to how uh, Zelensky and Ukraine have been so incredible at this, at messaging, at packaging, at really getting across um, this inspiring narrative, where, mm-hmm. of course, you know, if you know the background, which I barely know, you know, the history of what's of the conflict, then it's murkier. Mm-hmm. But people don't need murky. And war is also an opponent of murky.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: every war, there's a simplicity to how the story is told. Um, and now that we have all of these young people with drone cameras and 5D cameras, they can go there and record themselves within that context and then put their own quite superficial slant on newsmaking. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's a lot of what we receive through TikTok or instagram is is about the visuals it's not about the content so much it is about the visuals and and the way it's packaged
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah i haven't been i i was shocked of course to see the actual numbers today of how much how many soldiers have died like it's like it you know the official number is like 1300 or something like that so we can easily double it i think i think it's much much more yeah So it is shocking. I mean, the other thing, of course, uh, uh, on a personal uh, note, it's like we all the time talk about like the uh, like the death of like globalized ways of thinking. We are all cosmopolitan. We are all connected. We are in a village or whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, it's so easy immediately to have taken our national positions and I just feel so allergic because I've been asked so many times why the Indian Prime Minister Modi is siding with Russia. Uh, somebody told me if you're going to be doing this event, uh, can you find out why Africans, all Africans, are siding with Russia? It's like, you know, uh, it's a sort of it's a sort of immediate post uh, position taking uh, that's that's kind of taking that's kind of nationalism. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, you know, disorienting and really problematic, because I do want to answer to that. But I don't stand for (laughs) India, you know, I couldn't, you know, I, you know, I'm opposed to Modi in every fiber of my being. So it's really, it's put a crisis of like, alignments and things like that, because of people's uh, strange understandings about the Cold War as well, what they think it was, right? Uh, Let's talk a bit about historical amnesia. We have another guest, but. um, (laughs) Do you think some of the uh, problematic coverage uh, and uh, social media chaos around this is to do with uh, like just a zero history situation? Like people have just, or is it a deliberate dehistoricizing that war brings about? Or is there really just more training when reporters go on the field or where documentary makers or journalists?
2: I think one thing that was very clear for me was that... uh... (laughs) Sorry, guys. Uh, I think one thing that was very clear for me is when I was in graduate school um, in the US that the sense of American exceptionalism um covers every aspect of it to the point where I think a lot of the journalistic amnesia or myopia is just drinking the Kool-aid. Mm-hmm. People, I remember um, I remember like I'm going back to Iraq and Afghanistan because so much of that conversation is repeating itself only now in a different velocity. Even people like John Stewart, who was seen as the, the voice of reason in, in the Bush war against terror, would still talk about the American military in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is that even the kind of coverage that is coming from the so-called left, America doesn't have a left, liberal progressive media,
0: mm-hmm. is
2: deeply pro- problematic. It is propaganda. They do believe they are good guys. Mm-hmm. And that- that, that is one thing. And the second thing is, I don't think they understand history in a way that we experience it. If you are someone who is American, who's always had the capacity to travel, the capacity to parachute into places, uh, the authority, the cultural authority, I think America also, America and Europe a large extent also have the cultural authority of, because they set so much of the cultural values around the world, you can fly into Belgrade and get yourself a Mac, you know, a, a, a chicken McNugget. I think that cultural parachuting also defines how they tell the stories. Yeah, um, and I, I think even when you see stories, it's always about everything is. Often, I would get letters from young um, people applying to work for us or saying that I want to cover humanitarian crisis, but there is no humanitarian crisis. Yeah. There is a crisis of empire and war? We can talk about the trauma, the death, the, the, the black and brown, brown people being assaulted by violence, but we never name who was responsible for it. Mm-hmm. It's true of all of this coverage. And yeah. increasingly, it's also true of uh, people from places like India and, and, and parts of, of, of uh, uh, Kenya and Nigeria, these global citizens uh, who are now traveling, who are black or brown, who are now also beginning to use the same language when they talk about war.
0: Yeah, this is what I was trying to also uh, add on to the question is that, you know, I think we are very familiar with the problems that the Western media uh, presents, but to what degree have these now been co-opted also by what is kind of the new media that is, you know, online or wherever it thrives, right, which is places like India, places like South Africa, where the leaders have gone on and made some crazy statements about what's going on. Um, and, you know, their media is like India has, I, I don't even know how many users have people, everybody is, you know, connected and listening and tweeting and writing or whatever. So what are those, what's going on there? You know, i, I it's a genuine question and it's a distress. It's, uh, it's not clear. What is their understanding of history, you know?
1: I think it can vary. I think, you know, the the South's relationship to Russia and the Soviet Union is very different. And that's playing out in the way that people perceive them, especially because for many people just say people who've been at the other end of drone strikes, what Russia's doing in Ukraine is not surprising, is not shocking, is pretty normal. Um, but I guess if you're living in the West, like we all are, including Billy, I think you're, you're in the UK, aren't you? Um, <laughs> then we're torn between seeing quite nakedly how Russia is, you know, the aggressor in this situation. But we're used to superpowers being aggressors. You know, who who gets to determine how much and how far they can go? It's never been us as people from the Mm non-West. Yeah. Uh,
0: Should we get to the topic of this uh, discussion? (laughs) <laughs> why not right how to write about war um as you know will uh, bill uh, billy i think you were trying to say something before do you want to start with some thoughts on that uh the very literal question or rather manifesto <laughs> you're he's muted you're muted <laughs>
3: That's what I was trying to say.
0: Silence is the answer. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, when I when I go back to the conflict in Kenya in two thousand and seven, mm. um, what I what I distinctly remember by that time, I think, had edited the funny Journal for for three three years. I was used to dealing with writers. I was used to dealing with topics in a certain way, and these were kind of general things around, kind of. Pani a lot was trying to deal in trying to find an aesthetic for perceived Kenyan social problems. So that, that's, that's the program we were on. And then this thing, this thing where the country just breaks out into this conflict after the elections, just, but what was, everybody who called themselves a writer or an editor, immediately what happened and what I remember is you revert immediately to being a citizen. You forget all that stuff first. And, and, and for a long time, uh, I found myself frozen in terms of just the sheer fear that, well, this country could actually go into civil war. So there's that first.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and there's a, and there's, for me, I find it's very, very important to kind of sort out one's feeling or one's head, because you could easily go in different directions when you eventually come back to try to write about it. So, um, and, and because the Kenyan one was relatively unexpected, um, I think there's a kind of preparation that's required of writers. I know journalists are probably kind of trained nowadays to kind of expect these things and, and, and work on these things, but that's the first thing first. There's a kind of fear, the very kind of visceral feeling around that moment. Some of it you can tap into to kind of produce work, but one has to be very clear about how they are feeling and what they are going to do with it. There's that. In Kenya particularly, what helped was was once again kind of weird foreign coverage of what was happening. So immediately that conflict in on kenya was called uh, a pre-genocide moment. Mm -hmm. Now, the beauty about that was that there was a kind of marshalling by local writers against the foreign press against that, and that brings momentum the beauty about that was that it kind of made it clear that we have to own the narrative as kenyans yeah as kenyan writers that you can't let anyone else kind of own your narrative you really really have to jump in there and and get, get hold of it and this stuff happens first so you have to do it quite quite quickly um there's also i think the the whole question around uh, how do you deal with the fact that you're a member of a, of one of the communities where there are sides? They are sides. That's a that's a whole other thing to kind of sort out with. I think it, it was relatively easy as an editor because all you could do was try and get as many writers from different sides to kind of cover as much of it as possible. But for you as a writer, it becomes a bit trickier. Mm-hmm. I think there was also the question of uh, if, you're a, if you're a fiction writer and you're a fiction writer of a certain kind in terms of how you see your aesthetics, you find yourself, you, you find those aesthetics becoming almost meaningless because of the fear and because of the seriousness, especially in Kenya, because we were kind of, I think, programmed a certain way. we were a certain kind of set at Kwani that used to talk a lot about uh, writing Kenya in a certain way. Then this thing hits you and you have to think about what happened to my style and what happened to all that nonsense you were talking about and how do you kind of write straight from the, from, from, call it the gut or the heart. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of, I think, goes on. Yeah, there's, there's also the stuff about the velocity of events, which you, as a writer, you can barely keep up with. This stuff happens so quickly and so fast. That uh, you you, uh, you, uh, you know this thing they call the narrative stance, because literary writers mostly write from almost from the place of authority of something that has hap- uh, that has just passed or that is happening uh, uh, as 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 you're writing it. But of course you have control. But these are events you don't have control over. So there are all these. uh, And then you've got to compete against the narratives. In the Kenya conflict, what was going on was a kind of peace versus justice. Everyone was calling for peace and that gathered a lot of momentum. A lot of people were asking, what about justice? What about all the kind of injustices, historical injustices that have happened in Kenya? How do we deal with those? Uh, Of course, it's much more complex than, than those two things. It's not binary like that. So how do you talk about both things? And yet kind of capture the complexity of it. So basically, this is a round away, roundabout way of me talking about how complex uh writing about conflict can be, at least within the Kenyan context at that time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I haven't covered or written in in the in war, I've been in dictatorship uh, spaces, but um I I don't agree that the style must go out of the window and the aesthetics. I understand what you're saying. I think you're saying considered writing is difficult. Rewriting, revising is difficult. But I think it's all about, you know, I I don't think there is such a thing as it's just coming out of your gut. You know what I mean? So I I don't know what others feel about it.
3: No, it's not so much that you need to kind of throw those things away. I just feel that, there's a kind of indulgent way, at least I used to kind of deal with it before that. And I just- How so? Like I felt like I used to spend a lot of time uh, thinking about craft, being about being, being more stylish than I need to be. And things just needed to be said. That's- the style? Yeah. I
0: know you arrived to that, the, to offer directness as a part of style. I don't know, Nadifa I would, I mean, Suchitra, whoever.
1: It's a difficult one. Um, and I'm I'm teaching at the moment, so it's making me think about how other people do it rather than how I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and rereading Abdul Razak's books, especially the last novel, Afterlives, which is set in the First World War and just before then as well, and just how much violence there was in that part of the world and how little known that is and how there was, you know, it's... Tanzania is littered with mass graves of the carrier corps and the Askaris who served for the different colonial forces. And that was a, there was a small outcry over that a couple of years ago in the UK when people who would served for the British army were just dumped um, pretty much everywhere while the British and even the white German soldiers were given genuine cemeteries with headstones. So that, that relationship of mass death with mass amnesia Is something that I think writers have to find a way of working through. What do you tell people about something that has probably had a cataclysmic effect on their family, whether three generations ago, two generations ago, four generations ago, that they have little awareness of? Um, And in Somalia's case, again, there's been so much different types of violence, one leading to the other, and the way that it's manifested in, in small ways in in family, violence within a family, or at schools, or in religious schools. Um, people... Do you, do you want to write about that with style? You know, do you want to make it gorgeous? Do you want to make it softer? Um, no, I think even sometimes just describing what, is, what has happened is enough. But if you're a writer, that's not why you're doing it. You're not just trying to describe things that have happened. You're trying to piece together some sort of sense out of all of it, and the style is related to that. Um, and I remember with some uh, critics for my first novel, there were, it was too bold in its violence. It was too graphic,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it you know it was it was upsetting because of that. You know, it was too visceral. But we're so used to looking away from violence, and I was not like that when I was younger. But now I do look away from violence. I can't. I can't. There's too much of it. It's too easily accessible. You turn on Twitter, and there's a dead body, or you know some Mm -hmm. disgusting incident. So I can't. I can't do that myself as as an individual anymore. So I don't think I could write like that anymore. But I also I also feel that compulsion to describe things as they happened.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I would say, as an editor, this is a very, this is a very difficult, this is a huge quandary, uh, uh, you know, because one has control over what you're reading. The desire is to Censor turn it. the page, uh, turn it. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't read those scenes in your book, Nadifa, um, uh, or and in. Why not? Why not? because i want peace of mind I, I i want peace of mind that's
1: a luxury <laughs>
0: it is a luxury and i would like to keep it it is a luxury i would like to continue to have uh, and for me i get uh, you know some people react more to it and some others uh the the child being tortured raped whatever i i it's not it's not stomachable right uh yeah. so uh you know i don't know where we land in terms of expression of violence, you know, because along with that, there's a question of dignity. You know, there is a question of dignity when you are visualizing, uh, when you're narrating uh, certain violent scenes, acts, images. I mean, I understand that the war is taking place in Ukraine and I think the images have been reserved my sense is that they have been reserved. Uh, you know, that was not that was not the controversy when the Dulcet II bombings took place in Nairobi and you saw these bodies slumped over, stomach blood spilling out, and there was all these debates around dignity, right? And um, you know, who yeah. is dignity given to? Uh, And the other thing for me is also impact, you know, just coming out of, say, conversations about craft or literature or literary criticism, uh, you know, if I'm reading something about something where my imagination is allowed to activate how brutal something will be, as opposed to being told blow by blow how brutal it is, what impacts more? Personally, for me, the, you know, if my imagination is brought into play, it is almost worse. And, It's often the case. So, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, Suchitra, you've not had a say here. Please go ahead. Um, It's it's very difficult for me to think about this because um,
2: I'll be very candid because uh, when I was beginning to write, um, one of the things that, uh, when I was putting together my book proposal, um, Bhakti said this to me. Bhakti said, you need, like, I was hiding behind a very academic legal language. And... I was hiding behind academic and legal language because I didn't think I had the courage to actually say what I felt. It's easy to talk about grievable bodies. It's easy to talk about the critical theory of visual representation. It's easy to quote, um, you know, uh, the spectacle and the society. But it's harder to write exactly how you feel and articulate in a way. So for me, becoming... I wouldn't even say becoming a good writer, even because meant I had to learn how to just write what I was seeing and feeling. And that takes a lot of courage. And, you know, um, language is, you know, style is the dress for thought. And I think it's very much who we are and how we write. Um, having said that, I think there is also now a culture where we all write like each other when I say this, and I, I've done this with, with some of my students when I was still teaching, when I printed um, uh, non-long form creative non-fiction written by five Indian authors, all men, all of upper caste, upper class backgrounds, I the students hadn't read these essays before. I deleted out their names, the titles of the essays. They were just given handouts that they would read And the reality was that all these five men came from different ages, different political beliefs, different backgrounds, Mm. but the students really couldn't tell the difference between who was who. Um, And increasingly, I think that is the problem. I think when I first came here, I was edited out. I used to write these long, maybe this this is also the colonial baggage in school, you're taught a very specific kind of canon and when I first came here, I would write these long sentences. And then immediately I was told that this is not okay. This is not just, I was told this is bad writing. Maybe it wasn't bad writing. Maybe it was just a writing that was very different than what the average American editor encounters. Because in the U.S., a good writer is someone who who writes uh, like Raymond Carver. I mean, and the point is that we have these hang-ups. And I think that is the second thing.
1: I really agree. Sorry. Yeah.
2: And then finally, I think writing about war should never be the same because we all write from a different place. What Nadifa could write about war is very different because Nadifa has lived through war. I have never lived through war. I've been, I've had the luxury of bearing witness to many of these wars as a lawyer, as a writer. And Bhakti says that she has the luxury of not wanting to engage with this.
0: So
2: I think... Of course, what Nadifa writes is not going to be what Suchitra writes, and of course, what Billy writes in terms of him writing is not going to be what Bhakti writes. But the mm-hmm. point is that the moment all four of us start writing like each other, which I fear is a problem is happening, is mm-hmm. the. Yeah. I I...
1: yeah, go on. As well, I haven't lived through war. So my family, we left before the war took place. So everything has been through research or interviewing people in my family and beyond who have seen it more closely. And I think. Um, Probably my feelings have changed, but we, we haven't talked about the impact of emotions on how you write. The way that you are animated when you're writing about something will change the execution of how you write. And there is, I have, I think there's a gut response I have towards what you're talking about, which is you have to do it this way. You have to be objective. You have to be, you have to hide the worst details. You've got to talk about generalities. It's very different reading about um, an incident where 30,000 people were killed in Addis Ababa in the 1930s by the Italians than to actually follow the slow and public death of one person. It has a different emotional impact, both for you as a writer and as a reader. So there is something about, it's a weird combination of the African body being both a public site of violence, like those pictures you talked about from the Doucette um, attack, to one where one person is completely interchangeable with the next person, so one dead body is interchangeable with the next, Um, and I think that's, I refuse that element, they're not interchangeable, each death is specific, and the responsibility for it is specific, Mm -hmm. and you can only do that by going into detail, and by sitting with it, not Mm -hmm. looking away, Um, but now I think I've, I've had my, I will write about war in my the one I'm working on right now, but it's not going to be about the war itself. It's more the consequences much later on, the people connected to the individuals who died in that war. So that's a different lens and one that doesn't ask for graphic descriptions of violence, but the way that once you've been hurt by a war, it enters your bloodstream. It enters the way you respond to many other things. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is maybe a trickier thing for me to pin down.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for that, Nadipa. I just want to pick off something you said about the impact of one's emotions in their writing. Maybe that's what I meant when I was referring to style versus no style. Maybe what I was talking about is that before the conflict in Kenya, um, one thought it was better to kind of do this very quiet, this cool, detached, thinking about aesthetics in the way you're thinking about the writing. And once the conflict came, That luxury just disappeared because you are just writing what you are feeling.
1: Yeah, and you should be. Yeah,
3: by all means. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think, I think the only other interruption I can make to this argument, which all of us. Sim, in the end feel similarly and are engaged whether we are looking away and engaging in one way or whether we are going deep in and engaging in that way right uh i wouldn't say uh any of us is shying away from the actual things that are going on but i think the other uh interruption uh to to that is the perceived audience uh in mind right i think this this is uh, different, of course, when it's a newspaper, when it's a tweet, uh, when it's uh, a long work of fiction, a short story, essay. Uh, you know, who who is it? You know, first of all, who is it? Does who does one have in mind? Is an important question within that. But when one knows what's in mind, what uh, is one trying? to uh, subvert or change or shift, you know, are we interested in uh, making that, you know, making that history more visible? Are we interested in the individual, uh, you know, death or torture or violence upon the individual bodies? Um, You know, what what is the discourse one is trying to shift Or what should one, what should be the questions that this should be approached with, you know, when we think about who we are writing for? Who are we trying to sway? What are we trying to sway, you know? You know, Bhakti, I used to, I used to be very ambitious.
2: Um, I used to be very ambitious in that I believed that if we, if we did this, if we responded, if we, Mm -hmm. Responded to the acts of injustice. And I think that's what, that's also the reason why I left being a lawyer. And I felt that I wasn't performing my task. Mm-hmm. Justice was not the solution. Justice was never getting done. And when I became a writer, I thought I could shift something.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and increasingly, I no longer have those ambitions because, one, the ambition itself, I think, really. Curtails your capacity to write and think. Mm -hmm. Now, what I do is I'm a writer who writes to make sense of the world. I don't write from a place of knowing. I don't write from a place of authority. I write in order to make sense of the world. So, for me, writing gives me an opportunity to sit down and think and describe my social reality. Second, I still want to have footnotes in history. I want to be a footnote in history if tomorrow someone is looking for a footnote, we need a footnote. Because as brown and black writers, those coming from communities where we are constantly being either uh, tokenized to say a story or become in other ways told, only we can say this kind of a story. I think our, my biggest, what I'm trying to say is that we are constantly being told to give citations for our own lived histories. Mm. And for me, perhaps this is a citation that I am creating that tomorrow somebody else could could maybe stand on. That is the second thing. And finally, I think writers write.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, a good writer, when I say good writer, I'm not talking about style, I'm not talking about uplades. A good writer is someone who is always moved to write. We write because it is a, it is a pathological condition. You want to document, you want to archive, you want to take a photograph. Along those ways, you want to try and do it with as much dignity you think you can offer to your community, your people. Um, so that, that's where I am. I know I'm sounding very upset and maybe even depressed, but I think that's where I am. I don't think we are shifting the discourse I because we are repeating the same things over and over again. Uh, race and class two years ago published an essay that said, is colonialism bad? <laughs> i mean imagine we are we are debating settled
0: discourse mm-hmm. kate, william and kate are in, in, in jamaica well it is it is depre- it is depressing because yeah you feel the echo <laughs> we're back in the same repetition dynamic and all that kind of stuff you know yeah uh, i do actively feel and part of that was organizing this is that you know, I teach hundreds of <laughs> students and young people. If I can convert two to just a deeper historical push or to read something that's not only on, I don't know where they go to read things. You know, I do, I do think that like the fundamental education uh, imperative in there um, should not be lost you know, I don't think, if I understand it's a pathological condition. One writes, one can't stop but write, but that doesn't mean that the writing is uh, good or the writing is shifting anything or that it's activism. Uh, you know, I, I, I would even say perhaps one should think more than who one is writing for and why one is uh, one is doing it, right? And not saying don't write or that you should write only in a particular way, but you know, there has to be some imperatives, whether it's justice, whether it's education, uh, whether it's revenge.
1: Revenge is revenge.
0: <laughs> I love that revenge. That
1: makes me feel good, whatever happens.
2: <laughs> that, that's only on Twitter threads and I think
0: Yeah, revenge is hard to gauge the impact of revenge. Has it worked? <laughs> we don't know,
1: right? Well, you you know in your heart, you know. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's good. I'm for sure. Um should we just round out some final uh, thoughts, Billy?
3: Um, yeah, I, I find I find the audience question interesting, and I was trying to think when I was doing all this writing whether it's around the, the electoral violence, but also, mm-hmm. but also, I wrote I wrote a book about a whistleblower, which is a different kind of, I think, violence, uh, and that's a violent corruption. Um, But it's interesting, at the time, I was, I thought that writing was about a conversation. And I, later on, I thought it it was, I I mistook it for a way to have conversations with people who felt exactly like me. And then when I I saw that these things hadn't, hadn't changed, hadn't changed much anything by that i mean that the elections continued being crazy with potential violence kenya's going to have another elections i was like you know what i, I i'm I, I just can't do this stuff anymore i, I just got tired uh, i couldn't deal with it and i've always tried to think about what what happened maybe i just grew old but i like i can't even stand like dealing a lot with the kenyan election anymore um so in in terms of writing and in terms of audience um it's just amazing how that can just be take, can can be taken away and it's mm-hmm. not so much answering about audience i'm just thinking aloud based triggered by what you said about 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 audiences and and, and what what writing means cuz now i think the stuff that i've thought that i want to write about is moving away from that mostly nonfiction stuff that looks directly face onto things, to a kind of novelistic, writing a novel that is kind of removed in a way, but explores things. And I wonder, and and I'm I'm still thinking through why I'm doing that. When I the the the, the, the Whistleblower book, I I swore I will never, ever do this again. Just how I felt. Like the sheer exhaustion of that stuff and the madness of it. Mm. it's just dealing with all the players and all the stuff that goes on, even just trying to put out something like that, it's just... It's, yeah.
1: Can't, can't dealing with Ken- Kenyan politics or Somali politics. Oh.
3: <laughs> <Too> easily, <laughs> 15 years. And 15 years. Yeah. You nah. feel like 15 years older after, you, after you've done this thing for about one and a half
1: years. And it just goes round and round in a circle. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Everywhere though, everywhere. Let's not blame Kenya
1: and Somalia. <laughs> you
0: should see how Indian <laughs> violence right. and the daily stuff is just out of control yeah right.
2: Right. yeah
0: it's it's so bad it's it's just like state sanctioned full-on reign of terror that it's just yeah. impossible I don't even know I mean Suchitra is much more deeply involved in uh, but sometimes
1: you know, it's not even terror or violence it's just the inability to move beyond certain concepts or basic, Narratives. I know mm-hmm. that's, you know, in Somalia, with Somalia and Somaliland, it's this question of independence. And these people, normally men, who get so animated at the idea of a one Somalia or, you know, clan conflicts that have gone on for God knows how long. And they are the people in authority. That right. is what I find just so frustrating that I cannot engage anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: Doesn't matter. Yeah.
2: Mm, yeah
1: <laughs> so chitra any final words uh
0: final words um this is a,
2: this is something i tell a lot of people is that i remember being in school and india um becomes a nuclear power it was 1998 i remember everybody that i knew but as a young this was someone i was in middle school i i just felt that this was wrong The moment that India becomes a nuclear power was wrong, that this was just have some dire effects, not only to the country, the subcontinent, the world. But I was, but I didn't see my ideas or arguments or my concerns reflected anywhere. In newspapers, by this time, India had a 24-7 news channel. Everybody was telling me that this is it, we had arrived. The capacity to annihilate each other is what is going to put us on the roadmap to superpower, you know, capacities. And Mm -hmm. then Outlook magazine arrives when Arundhati Roy wrote the essay, End of Imagination. I read that essay and I knew that for the first time, yes, I I was a kid. I didn't know. I knew something was wrong. I didn't have the skills, the capacity, the argument, the language to articulate what was wrong. But I finished reading End of Imagination and I knew that this was it. This was it. Somebody out there was articulating. It gave me confidence that what I felt was right, that the capacity and annihilate each other is not progress. Mm-hmm. And I'm forever grateful for Arundhati Roy for writing that essay because that changed my world. If not for that essay, I would have very much become a right-wing, BJP-supporting, nationalistic human being because as a young person, it's so easy that... We are looking for arguments. We are looking for that.
0: Mm-hmm. I
2: don't claim, I, I think very few people in the world can claim to have the kind of impact someone like Roy or others have in the world. But that mm-hmm. was important. Because in, in 1998, Arundhati Roy, I don't know if she was this big. I know she had won the book already, but I do not know she was this big. She was big. She was still big. She was still, so the point is that I still hadn't read God of Small Things. I knew
1: of her, but that essay. Mm-hmm. My political world, and maybe yeah. that's why she stuck to nonfiction for so long, because she was having that. No yeah, could be. Could be. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. So that's what I, I, I think the point I will extrapolate as my kind of final thought on it is that war is disgustingly phallic and masculine. So all the morality and the ethics and the politics that comes out of it is disgustingly phallic and masculine. It's all about masculine power ableist power, Uh, and I think uh, unless we can really gender our lens, uh, we can't move at all, you know, whatever, Uh, whether it's the shape of the missiles and the drones, whether, you know, uh, all the language around it, I mean, this is like the extraordinary crisis of writing about war is a crisis of uh, gender uh, a lot of the times, uh, in my opinion. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, so I think that's also a big that's just just a huge uh, element in it, and I, the coverage is exactly it's exactly as ordained. It's just as masculine and uh, ridiculous as ordained. And the an emergency gives more shape to masculine morality, masculine action, you know, max, masculine style, and so on. So and and the yeah. women follow that. I'm not saying that the women are immune to it. The women follow that same toxic uh, approach. So the lens has to has to shift. Anyway, Uh, anything else? Should we uh, call this over? I thought this was a lot of food for thought. I don't know as many solutions, but something. (laughs) Thank Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. everyone. Thanks, everybody.
2: Bye-bye. Bye.